Grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied abundantly unto you all through our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isn't that the truth? God's ways are way different than ours. Philippians, take Paul. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, thrown in prison, has really served to advance the gospel. Huh? God allowed Paul to be thrown into prison the best missionary the church has ever had. End of the mission? Nope. Verse 14. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Hmm. How about the gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 20 you heard? All those laborers which were sitting around and not working they got hired for the day. Thank you, Mr. Vineyard owner. They got paid the agreed upon wage, a day's wage, a denarius. But other workers who were just standing around doing nothing got hired much later in the day. We got to get the harvest in, the owner's thinking. Well, they got paid the same amount, a day's wage. The first workers cried, unfair, unfair. And the owner of the vineyard answered, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. I mean, I didn't have to hire you, but I did. You're welcome. And I paid you what we agreed. In verse 15, do I not have the right to do what I want with my own money, which is to be generous. Or are you envious because I am generous? That is the way God operates with generosity and fairness. Everyone is expecting fairness in God's way, generous. God does things differently, right? Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. And when are we going to learn this lesson? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sinless Son of God, came not to the kings and the nobles, not to the good and the upright. He came to the lost. He came to the sinners. And he came for the sinners. Let's look at Jesus' strategy for bringing the good news of salvation to the world, because that's what we're going to be talking about this fall. And it's not what we would expect. Read the Gospels and notice how often Jesus hangs out with people. Luke 7, 36 enjoying a meal at their home. Mark 4, telling stories to folks gathered. John 2, 
attending parties and celebrations with neighbors and friends. Jesus hung out with people a lot. Matthew eleven nineteen, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. How did Jesus get that reputation? It wasn't because Jesus actually overate or overdrank. However, he often hung out with people who did. Matthew 9, verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Luke 19, When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. All the people saw and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. Jesus does what a lot of people didn't expect for such a godly man to do. Jesus enjoyed being with people and knew how to hang out with them. He was gracious towards them. He valued them. He watched and he listened, and he shared stories, and he shared life. He wasn't in a hurry. And when the moment eventually came to share some good news about God, it was well received precisely because he had earned their trust as he hung out with them. There's a huge lesson in that for us. Don't expect people to be interested in what you have to say until you show interest in them. And what's really interesting, Jesus chose to hang out with people and enjoy them even though, I'm sorry, he had a huge mission to accomplish and just a little bit of time to do it. This strategy seems inefficient for those of us who are busy, goal-oriented people. We don't have time to spare. Hanging out with people seems inefficient to us. Could it be? that a strategy that seems inefficient on the surface ultimately be most effective? God's ways are not our ways. 
Jesus indirectly addresses this very question at the end of his statement in Matthew 11, verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. In other words, wisdom is shown to be right by what results from it. In other words, what may not seem like a wise strategy to begin with will be shown to be spot on and wise in the end. And the result of our strategy proves the wisdom of our strategy. Consider the following list of people. The tax collectors and sinners. Matthew, one of them. Nicodemus, the Pharisee. Mary Magdalene, who once had seven demons. Zacchaeus, who once was a cheat. The woman at the well, who once was an adulterer. And the band of disciples, which we've already learned lots about and their shortcomings. Talking about mission effectiveness, each of these people were a result of Jesus' inefficient use of time namely hanging out and enjoying them as people. One of our biggest challenges we have in living missionally, in witnessing, is investing time in the process of becoming friends with people. We think we need to be efficient with our time, and for many of us, investing in friendships may not seem efficient. We tend to value efficiency over relationships. Policies over people. We think if we are going to spend time with people missionally, we want to be able to accomplish something as efficiently as possible. So we calculate it like this. How much can we accomplish missionally with the least amount of time invested? That would be efficient. Unfortunately, while that logic looks good on paper, dealing efficiently with people for the sake of their salvation is completely ineffective. Yeah, the days of sending tracts in the mail, mm. I'm going to ask you, how is that working for you? In Canada, we value efficiency over relationships, and we all get caught up in it. We have things to do. We have goals to reach. We have tasks. For those of you who are task-oriented, you've got to get them done. I hope you will learn this lesson with me. In the Gospels, Jesus values relationships over efficiency. And he seems pretty effective. It is the inefficient investment in friendships. Being a friend of sinners that leads to effective missional results in people's lives. 
Consider what would Jesus' mission work have looked like had he done it our way. On the other hand, what would our mission work look like if we did it his way? Is it time to put aside our ineffective goal of efficiency and start being with people again as soon as we are told that it's safe to do so? I sure hope so. Hanging out and enjoying people was Jesus' secret weapon of redeeming the world to his Father. It's easy to underestimate the importance, but it's hard to dismiss the results. And we should, apparently, imitate him. Yes, we should imitate him. Jesus' mission of restoring and redeeming broken and lost people, it's complex. I can't imagine what Jesus has to do to convert someone to believe in him. That's why he keeps our role and participation pretty simple. All we have to do is enjoy people and look what God might be doing in their lives already while we enjoy people's company. Why do I say enjoy rather than love people? I mean, Matthew twenty two thirty nine. doesn't Jesus himself say, love your neighbor as yourself? Of course he does. But here's the reason. If I use the word love, you might define it in today's cultural context. Canadian Christians have become good at loving our neighbor technically without actually loving our neighbors. For instance, we feel confident in saying we love our neighbor, yet we often don't even know our neighbor's name. How many of you know the names of all your neighbors? Don't put your hand up. Their children, their parents, what they do for a living, and their aches and their pains. All the people on your cul-de-sac, your street. People don't tell me. They don't love their neighbor. They don't even know their neighbor. And we're all guilty of this because that's generally how our culture works today. Hmm. It's going to take Jesus' people to change that. We readily say that we love our neighbor, yet we neglect acting with any specific love toward the person who actually lives door to us, next door to us. We see nothing wrong with drawing distinctions such as, I love my neighbor, but that doesn't mean I have to like my neighbor. Where do we get that idea from? When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, did he mean we should technically love our neighbor without having to actually love our neighbor? Jesus was known as the friend of sinners. Evidently, the sinners even liked to hang out with Jesus do you think they liked being with Jesus because he loved them 
without really liking them? Would they really have appreciated Jesus if he simply put up with them rather than genuinely enjoyed them? Technical love doesn't feel like love at all, does it? Real love doesn't ignore their neighbor or simply put up with their neighbor. Real love enjoys their neighbor and is a friend to their neighbor. And where did we get this crazy idea? Jesus. Jesus didn't ignore sinners or put up with the sinners. Jesus enjoyed sinners. He ate and drank with them and was a friend of sinners. The gospel shows that he was actually there for them. He was there for them. came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, what if I genuinely don't like my neighbor? Someone's got that in their head. I'm sure someone has. What if I genuinely don't like my neighbor? It's a good question. What if we have had issues with our neighbor? What if they've been unkind or worse, even criminal? How can we enjoy someone who is a sinner to us? Jesus shows us how. We do what Jesus did in order to be our friend. And what did Jesus do in order to be our friend? We just kind of sang about it. Yeah, he drew deeply upon his Father's grace. In order for Jesus to be our friend, he first had to have grace for us. Likewise, in order for us to be friends with neighbors we don't yet like, we need to draw upon the Father's grace, perhaps deeply. Jesus was full of grace and truth. I love that Bible verse. He was full of grace and truth. And as the message puts it, that paraphrase of this verse, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Oh, man. Jesus' ways are much higher than our ways. He's full of grace and truth. As followers of Jesus, we don't put up with our neighbors. We draw upon his grace and extend friendship to them. In fact, Jesus says, that's actually very good for us. Look at these words from Luke 6. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. 
And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And here it is. And you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. What Jesus is saying is when a relationship requires us to draw deeply from his grace, to be a friend to those who don't deserve it, we are actually showing ourselves to be children of our Heavenly Father. He is also kind to those who don't deserve it. His invitation is not for us to draw just enough grace so that we can put up with such neighbors. His invitation to us is to draw upon his grace so that we can begin enjoying our neighbors and building a trusting relationship with them. Grace enables us to see the neighbor as a person, as a soul in need of forgiveness, not just as the trouble he or she is causing us. In grace, Jesus sees redemptive value in our neighbor. That's why Jesus loved our neighbor and gave his life for them. After all, isn't that what Jesus has done for us? God has been so gracious and loving toward us. This is my commandment. Not that you love others as you love yourself, that you love one another as I have loved you. And I'm sure all those sinners and tax collectors, publicans, I'm sure they knew that Bible verse. Jesus' strategy was inefficiently effective as he hung out with sinners in his Father's grace. Lord, help me to be more like you, to value people and spend time with them, and look for and respond to what you're doing in their lives. This I pray. And then it dawned on me, from Psalm 27, we heard it read earlier. I'm looking for it here. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We come to church, I'm pretty sure, to be reminded of the cross and what Jesus has done for us, which is God's grace to us. We come to church to be filled with God's grace. The beauty of God is his generosity and his grace. 